We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have together. We pray that you would illuminate for us um, a very difficult passage in Leviticus. We don't relate to these kinds of laws uh, well in our culture. And so help us to see um, the, the point of it all, the purpose behind uh, these laws and how they point us to Christ and our need of Him and Your work in us because of what He accomplished on the cross. We thank You for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Leviticus chapter 11. Um, and we've just completed the narrative on uh, the ordination of the priesthood. And part of what God has instructed the priest to do is to discern between what is holy and unholy, what is clean and unclean. And therefore, it is logical uh, to um, give them a manual on what is clean and unclean. What is what is um, what are they to be instructing the people on how to live holy lives before the Lord? A bit of a warning this morning. Uh, this chapter and, and through 15 is what people have in mind when they think of Leviticus. A bunch of arbitrary, random laws, seemingly random laws, uh, that deal with things we have no connection with. What to eat, what to touch, what not to eat, what not to touch. And it's just uh, a lot of those. And this manual begins with dietary laws. In liberal media, yes. I'm hearing a lot of Leviticus quotations. In Leviticus. They, they become experts yeah. in, in Leviticus. And so one of the things we want to talk about is how, do you, how does this impact modern day Christianity? What, what does this have to say to us? When you read through dietary laws, why are they here? What's the purpose and meaning of these laws? And the smart folks are divided on this. Um, we have very little help from the ancient Near East cultures around. No other culture that we've found has these kinds of laws on strict dietary um, regulations. This is not there. It's not part of the cultures around. It's just Israel. There's no commentary on it anywhere else from the other cultures on why this would be the case. They're the only ones. So all we have is the text and are pulling from the text what it says, what's relation to these. That's it. There's no cultural commentary on this. And so it's difficult. And Scripture's not that clear as to the purpose behind why these dietary laws are here. There's no, I'm giving you this because pigs cause trichinosis. You know, there's none of that. It's just, this is the way it's going to be. This is what you eat, this is what you don't eat. This is what you touch, this is what you don't touch. And there's no, uh, there's no explanation. But generally, um, the smart folks have come up with four main views. One is that they're for hygiene purposes. Um, I mentioned pigs, trichinosis, and all that. There, so there's this idea that certain animals carry diseases that 
he was trying to protect them from in the wilderness, and that's bought some traction. But clean animals carry diseases too. You know, if you if you undercook pork, you get trichinosis. If you undercook beef, you can get salmonella. And yet, beef is something that you can certainly eat. Um, and if it's the hygiene issue, then why why does Peter? And we'll talk about this a little bit later. Why is Peter told, take up and eat these things that were formerly unclean? If God was concerned about hygiene, why then make it okay to be unhygienic for the New Testament Christians? That's what the, that was the only reason why I do that. It's not like their cooking practices had advanced. They didn't have thermometers by then. You know, they, it's, There's no reason for him to say, take up and eat an unclean animal, because the same thing would still be a problem. Um, the other... The other option uh, is a cultic option. Uh, animals that were declared unclean were used in pagan worship. And certainly that's true for some. You see this in Egyptian mythology. You see it in Canaanite practice. They used pigs to to sacrifice and, and all that because it's part of it, especially Egyptian uh, practice. But clean animals are also used in sacrifice in pagan cultures. I mean, they, we remember the golden calf, right? Uh, we remember the, the various gods that were represented by the, the bulls in Egypt. So clean animals were also used in pagan practice. So that may be true for some. It may be a polemic against some pagan cultures on occasion, but not certainly doesn't apply to everything. Another one was a moral, a more symbolic relationship. Um, some animals' behavior s- symbolically represented goodness or evil. Uh, some have argued that because the animals that chew the cud, ruminate, and, they, and then they regurgitate back up. It's to impress upon man the idea to dwell and meditate on the law. <laughs> you know, and, and you're laughing, and I did too. That's just so subjective, you know. Uh, the pigs are associated with the filthiness of iniquity, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, you could go down all kinds of rabbit trails, which were unclean. You go down all kinds of rabbit trails on that issue, but that's not really, I mean, that's so subjective. We don't, and we're not given that in the text. I mean, there's some comparison between morality and the, what's clean and unclean in the Old Testament and in the New, but that's certainly not applicable to everything. Um, the other option I found was uh, some argue that clean animals conform to a norm for their class of animal, for their type of animal. For example, on the land animals, and we'll see this when we get to the passage in a second. On the land animals, you have uh, the cloven hoof and they chew the cud. Those are the two distinctiveness, uh, distinctives of the land animals that, that were clean. Well, that's the norm for livestock that you eat and, and, and all that. A camel would not be the norm for that. They don't have cloven hooves. And it, so it, because it deviates from the norm, from the standard, then that would be unclean. Maybe. And that's, and that's the issue. Maybe. All of these are guesses. We just don't know. And so I think uh, attempts to make the text say something it, it, it doesn't you know, say in this, in this situation, um, how are you going to apply that kind of normative standard to, to flying creatures? You know, and to... to uh, to, to insects, we, with the with the flying creatures that we're going to get to today in thirteen through nineteen, half of those things we don't know how to translate the words for the animals. We don't even know what they're talking about. We we kind of have an educated guess, 
But we don't know. So how are you going to establish norms with those guys? So it's really, a lot of it is guesswork. All of these reasons could be in play, or none at all. We have no way of even guessing. The text doesn't tell us. But it does tell us this. These dietary rules are established for... um, uh, have the function uh, in the community of what we see in Leviticus 11:44 through 45 at the at the end of the chapter. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And that Hebrew word that smart folks translate holy signifies that something is wholly other. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about holiness. And we see that in chapters 11 through 15, the Israelites are to be set apart, wholly other from all the cultures around them as God is set apart. So this is a physical representation. These dietary laws and the other things we'll see with, with what to touch, what not to touch. They're a physical representation that affects every area of their lives. I'm to be wholly other. So, ultimately, that, I think, is a point we can all agree on. That that is the, the mode behind it. How he chose them, why he chose what he did, that's up for debate. But, 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 why, uh, but, but the purpose behind setting them up is to, is to, um, to show that they are to be wholly other. So what's the model for this distinctiveness? It's God's holiness. His nature must be reflected in the life of his people. And holiness that we'll see over the next four or five chapters is a world and life view. And this chapter 11, this first section we're getting into is 1 through 23, is, um, is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, verses 1 through 8 deal with land animals. Verses 9 through 12 deal with aquatic animals, and verses 13 through 23 deal with animals that fly. So let's look at verses 1 through 8 real quickly. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud or part the hoof, because it chews, well, I'm sorry, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. All right. Let's start off with a little bit of stage play here. Who are the actors involved? What's going on? Who's talking to who? Lord's talking to Moses and and Aaron. Now, remember, we talked last time over the last chapter. The distinctive uh, issue of God talking directly to Aaron. He had always talked to Moses, and then Moses talks to Aaron. Here we have God talking to Moses and Aaron, and He only does it 
four times in uh, in the Old Testament, and all four are in this this cleanliness code. God talking directly to Moses and Aaron together, and that's it. Why do you think that's the case? Why is he talking with Aaron and Moses at the same time? What would be the purpose of that? Maybe there's some accountability when they go to the people and say, this is what the Lord God said. It's both of them. It's not Aaron second-guessing. Well, I wonder if Moses just kind of made this up because it's really detailed. Yeah. What do you mean I can't eat camel? In other words, it points to God more. Okay. To, to talk to a bigger audience. Who's responsible to teach the people the law? Yes, they are. The, the, the priests, right? It's the priesthood. He had just said to them, duty to discern what is clean and unclean, what is holy and unholy, and to teach the people the law. They're to live lives, consecrated, holy lives, to, to, to implement these laws, and then they're to teach the people the laws. And so by having Aaron involved here, it emphasizes their duty, again, to not only live it out, but to teach it. And so Aaron is involved in this conversation so that, even though it's a rare thing, um, so that he is directly responsible um, to teach the people and to, and to live it out. It's the duty of the priesthood to oversee the cleanliness code. He begins with a general statement with no specific animals. Um, the, uh, the Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-hooded and choose the cut among the animals you may eat. Right, he doesn't get into specific animals until he talks about what you can't eat. Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy 14, 4 through 5, lists about 10 animals that may be eaten. Uh, and so it kind of supplements what we see in Leviticus. And, they, and, and, he, and Moses lists there the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, which I'm not sure what that is, the wild goat, all of them are wild, the ibex, <laughs> I have no idea what an ibex is. Does anybody know what an ibex is? Am I even saying it right? An ibex, ibex, tomato, tomato. You watch a lot of animal shows. There's such a thing called. It's like a gazelle kind of thing. They have the spiral deal. Okay. Now that would be fun to eat. Um, so you have. You don't eat the horns. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, so the antelope and the mountain sheep, which. Those things are awesome, the mountain sheep. Um, anyway, so they can eat those uh, per Deuteronomy 14. What are two aspects of the definition of what is clean in, uh, of land animals? The two things that you have here are uh, cleft hoof, which is a hoof that is split completely, and that's a distinctive characteristic of the land animal. And then, the, and then they chew the cud, and that means literally brings up the cud. It's a re-chewing and re-swallowing. Uh, kind of like bad Mexican food, you know. Anyway, sorry. Um, there's this idea of slow digestion. All right. Why is four through eight here? Don't we know the two standards already? Why would he then go into don't eat and then give a list? What do you think? Loopholes. He knows how, he knows that we are best. He knows that we're going to try to find loopholes. And so what is he doing here? There's no borderline cases. Right? 
There's no borderline cases. If a creature displays one requirement and not the other, they are unclean and impure and not to be eaten. And the camel is a good example of that I mentioned earlier. It was commonly camels were... Com- See, we don't relate to this. I don't think I could ever digest a camel. But they, they eat them. It does taste like beef. Okay, I always thought chicken. But they, they, they have maybe deer. You've actually eaten it. Wow. That's what you ate in Afghanistan. So this is... They call it... Yeah, in Iraq. Okay, so, so camel is eaten, camel's eaten a lot over there because it's everywhere. They ride it, they eat it, and they make glue out of the hooves. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't on the edge beef. It was camel. Is that what you're? Josh was turning pale all of a sudden. I don't know. I don't think he's ever really thought that through. Yeah. So they eat a lot of it over in the Middle East. Camels like a thing. We don't really relate to that, but not for Jews. Why? It chews the cud. But its feet are unique because the toes end in broad nails rather than hooves. It does split the hoof. And so why bring this up? Because we don't flirt with the borderline. In seeking and pursuing holiness, don't say, well, it has some characteristics that are good, but it's not quite there, but that's okay. Right? We don't flirt with the borderline of holiness. It's a physical picture of what he's he's pushing them toward from the heart. Notice that when he talks about the pig, uh, there's a double prohibition. There's no eating or touching. Um, that whole idea uh, brings up to mind what Eve said about the fruit on the tree. God said, don't eat it or touch it. You know, He didn't say that, but he is saying it about the pig. Now, given that, that you have this unclean thing, the pig gets this double prohibition, does it inform your understanding a little bit on the parable of uh, the prodigal son? When he goes off into the foreign country, Gentile country, pagan land, and not only is he living it up, corrupt from the inside, he's displaying a corruption and an uncleanliness on the outside by working with pigs, even desiring to eat what they eat, because, I mean, that's, those are hard times. Right, he's touching them. He's probably eating them, wanting to eat what they eat. He is completely um, assimilated into the pagan culture there. And then you know, you know the rest of the parable, the way that works. But do you see the picture that Jesus paints? Something that just would never happen. It's crazy because these are these are to be, and we'll see this later. They're to be detestable to them, and that idea of detestable is. There's a revulsion. It makes them ill to be touching this or eating this. That's that's the emotional response that they're to have to this. Now, it's food. It's food. And they're not to have this revulsion to locusts, which I don't get, but again, cultural thing. But it's food. Why would he, why would he want to do that through just food? Why do that? It's a picture. It's a physical picture of what revulsion we should feel toward the sin in our own heart, the uncleanliness in our own heart. Does that make sense? 
how do we learn? You, you and I were talking about this earlier this week, the different ways that we learn. Um, there's visual, there, well, through the senses, but also through motion and doing. Right. And here we have something that they're motioning <laughs> and doing every day. What they kill to eat is a motion. And again, it impresses every aspect of their lives. You're to be holy other. Look at 9 through 12. Um, what he talks about with the, the animals from the water. Uh, verse 9, These you may eat, all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. There's that word detestable, the revulsion. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. Again, some would argue there's the normative thing with the fish, that if they got fins and scales, that's a normative um, structure of the water animal. Eels, that's detestable to the Jew. Mollusks, lobster, oy- oysters are not detestable. Oh my gosh. They are to Jews. Um, those are detestable. They don't have fins and scales. Um, fins and scales include most fish, whether freshwater or saltwater. And the reason for the distinction is hard to discern. Again, people have done the hygienic grounds. Some, sometimes parasites are found uh, in those bottom feeder catfish. You know, sometimes they'll have parasites. Think of that the next time you go to a restaurant. Uh, we have the idea of normative here with the fins and scales being the standard. Uh, every meal at the seat food tent, they're reminded we're to be holy other. Whether land animal or water animal, they're reminded holy other. They must be set apart and must conform to God's mandates regarding holiness. Detest, the idea here is not hatred, but again, it's revulsion because of its impurity. Alright, animals that fly. Look at verses 13 through 23. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle. Can't eat an eagle. I'm not having a problem with that. And, and this is the thing that's interesting to me. I don't know if I don't have a problem with that because of this. And that's kind of been permeating in my culture. Because we're kind of a Judeo-Christian thing. Or if it's just nasty and I don't want to eat an eagle. I don't know. What came first, the eagle or the egg? So, um, anyway, you have the eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Maybe it's hoopoe. Ed Growlin Poe, right? So the hoopoe. And the bat. I'm not having a problem with any of those. Hawk, maybe. I don't know. I'm kind of cold. 
And I'm wondering, again, is it because of the influence? I guess in the Middle East they eat these things. I don't know if they... Did you ever eat a herring and Or herring and whatever? Is that a hoopoe? Very, well, it's very colorful. <laughs> All right. The way that it's set up, those birds that are not listed here uh, seem to be uh, fair game, so to speak. Sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, late at night. Okay. Many of these that we know eat rotting carcasses. So there's the idea of them eating carrion, eating things that are unclean. Maybe that has something, that obviously, diseases related to there. Maybe. Um, there's a theory there that that's why they're prohibited. All right. Also, there's a general prohibition against eating insects. Let's look at, uh, let's look at verse 20. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locusts of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. I, I don't think this is really a necessary prohibition. No, it is because John the Baptist needed this section. He did. He did. And there's some confusion on that. You think so? You think maybe he was eating bread rather than than insects? We have some we have some issues in the Greek there. I don't know. I've heard that, and I, I don't. I just I just have this vision of just a really cool, rugged man, and he's going to eat a bug. Cause just he's just going to do it. Yeah, they they did, and. Um, Uh-huh. I taught him all these survival. So we're hiking in Hawaii because that's where I lived when I was a kid. We had snacks with us, but he would just grab these bugs, random bugs, as we, and like show us how to take the legs off. You know, and I was just like, uh. Yeah. I now, was it jointed above the foot? No, I was eating dragonflies and I don't know all kinds of stuff. The thing that's amazing is that um, I, I feel a revulsion to that. I feel a revulsion to eating uh, locusts. But they're incredibly high in protein and fat and calories. And Middle Eastern people, and you see Asian cultures eat all kinds of bugs. They're, they're apparently very good for you. You can choke them down. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always that thought. You can always. That's all there is to eat. You can always open up, you know, your your uh, your, your your water meter box, and you have a good meal there. I mean, that. So. No, those are roaches. Those are not. Those are unclean according to. Oh man. Well, I'm already messed up. Um, there's this idea of. Uh, of, of, of them being able to eat things that are very, on well, the insects, is very limited to locusts. And uh, again, as we said, John the Baptist, uh, we think, ate them, depending on how you translate. 
some of that. All right. What do you do with this? <laughs> um, apparently. Uh, and you call it the Levitical diet and how you can lose weight and be... Um, that or the Daniel plan. What, one of the two, uh, you know. Uh, Kevin, yes. I, um, I'm kind of racking my brain to try to draw the connection here, but I, mm-hmm. I think the one thing that makes sense to me, and I don't know if this is right or not, is, is the main thing that God said. God said, this is clean, this is not clean. This is clean, this is not clean. If you look at believers and non-believers today, it's nothing about our body structure. It's mm-hmm. nothing about what we've done. It's not about our experience. It's just that God said this person is clean, holy, mm-hmm. blameless mind. This person is not. Mm-hmm. And so it's it comes down to faith. God said this. Mm-hmm. He made this set apart for his purpose and this not. Yeah. Some of the rabbis used to argue that these dietary laws are just random, God being arbitrary. And I, you know, I can see the... I, I, can't, I can't take that. Yeah, I, I see why they would say that, because it does seem sort of random. But God's a God of order, exactly. and he's a God of intent. Um, all, all those, some of the reasons that, you know, that, that we talked about, the hygiene and the cultists and all that stuff, may have played a part. Um, the primary purpose for these regulations is to impress upon the minds and hearts of the Hebrews that they are to be holy other. I think we have to land there because that's where he goes at the very end of the chapter. Um, they're to be distinct and different from the world around them and the dietary laws require diligence. Think about that. Diligence, work, planning ahead. Have you ever tried to stick to a diet whenever you're not home? It takes planning ahead. It takes a lot of baggies. Arby's is not on that list. It's not as ham. Um, there's a whole mindset that's involved to follow these laws. It's a very disciplined way to eat. I'm starving to death. There's pork right there. I'm not going to touch it because it's detestable to me because God says it's detestable to me. So you have this whole mindset of distinctiveness, of discipline. Thankfully... In Christ, these external distinctions have been done away with. We see this in um, in Acts 10. And he, Peter, became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, you know you're hungry. While they're preparing the food, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. This is God telling him this. And he says, By no means. He's telling God no. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And it didn't just happen once. It happened three times, told Peter, rise up meat. That's how entrenched this idea of physical distinctiveness was for the Jew. He told him three times, he's hungry. I, God, am telling you, rise up and eat. Three times. Ah, you know, that's their whole mindset was this distinctiveness. 
He really does. It takes, it takes a while for it to sink in three times. What we see in this passage, though, is that the covenant relationship with God is no longer centered on a nation, Israel, but now extends to all who believe, regardless of nationality. And aren't we thankful for that? The dietary laws do not symbolize the believers having been set apart to holiness. So great. Let's go. So glad we're free from all that. I'll meet you guys at Red Lobster. What? And I think that's an Acts, right? That's an Acts 10, yeah. The, the very next thing that happens after that is God has been communicating with a Gentile. Right. A, not a centurion. Cornelius. It was yeah, a centurion. Yeah. And he comes to Peter at this house after right. the meal and all that kind of stuff. And Peter, you know, saves him or leads him to the God. Right, whatever. right. And Cornelius does not have to become a Jew to be right. saved. That's he right. He have to follow any of the laws from this point on. And it says Cornelius was actually a God-fearing man. And what that meant was he was a Gentile who wanted really bad to be a Jew. Like, I really wanted badly to be a Presbyterian. He really wanted badly to be a Jew, um, but couldn't because he was a Gentile. Couldn't quite... And so he sends guys to Peter, and Peter follows them, and God says, you know, the Lord says, don't fear this, this is of me. And he brings him to the house, and he, he says, I'm God fearer, but I'm told by, I was visited by an angel to, that you had something to say to me. And Peter shares with him the gospel, and his, he and his whole house were saved. Um, and didn't have to become Jews. And didn't have to become Jews to do it. Now, before, they were just on the outside. They were the court of the Gentiles in the tabernacle, in the temple, you know. They had to be on the outside. But now he's close to the heart of God in Christ because of the gospel. And it's a picture, again, of that distinctiveness of national Israel taken away. Yet, and while I'd be happy to join you at Red Lobster, the New Testament points to our distinction among the pagan culture of our day. How are we distinct? How are we Holy other. First Thessalonians four seven. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In making such a huge statement, Paul doesn't quibble over what's on the dinner menu. He goes to a core display of our otherness. Verse one in First Thessalonians four. He says, "Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God." Just as you're doing, that do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. No guess there. No, I'm waiting for a voice in the wind. No, you know, I ate a bad taco. This is God's will. I just feel it this way. He's telling you, black and white, this is the will of God, your sanctification, colon, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother, and that Greek word there also means or sister, in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to for impurity, but in holiness, we're to live distinctive lives. And he picks something that is a, a clear distinction in pagan culture. Tammy and I um, were talking last night after everybody left. Um, it, it, does, it does happen. And uh, she made the point that although all of the dietary laws did not deal with hygiene, some of them did. 
God didn't want them to die from disease. I mean, that's some of that is in here. Granted, in like manner, the moral code, the law of Christ, is tuned to help us flourish. There is a physical benefit to living a under the law of Christ. How about keeping your liver intact rather than destroy it from excessive drinking? How about not flirting with getting an STD through sexual immorality? How about not living under the oppressive stress of debt through lack of self-control, etc., etc., etc.? The moral law of Christ allows, promotes, encourages flourishing. There is that aspect of it. But that's not the only reason that God calls us to live lives of distinction and holiness. But it is a reason. The most important emphasis for pursuing holiness is that, here it is, He is holy. That's the most important reason. Christ is holy other. And we want to be pleasing to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.9 So whether we are at home or away, home where it's easy to maintain distinctiveness because everything's there, it's comfortable, it's familiar, or away where you've got to plan ahead, bring your baggies and your cooler, make sure your diet's right. Whether at home or away, from a heart standpoint, we make it our aim to please Him. First Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. How sincere is our faith if we live under the cloud? Man, I'm glad nobody knows I do this. How pure is the heart there? How good is the conscience? Do we live lives that are disciplined and distinct or do we just try to project that we do? I fear uh, many times that's what I want others to see but in my heart I don't see much distinction. And I'm thankful for Christ. That's where I go. That's where I have to go. Because He prayed this and for their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified. They also may be sanctified in the truth. John 17, 19. I can't do it. You can't do it. Christ has already set himself apart. He, the God-man, is holy other so that we may be distinct, holy as God is holy. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Because he has perfected the work, finished the task, living a life of distinction on our behalf, we are to follow him. And Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Holiness is a world and life view. How many of us view it that way? It's a world and life view. It invades and permeates everything we do. I want to be distinct. Not being weird just to be weird, but living a life that conforms to His image in every area. Do we strive for that? These dietary laws paint the picture that every aspect of their eating, do we strive for that in our eating? Do we, do we live lives of self-control in our eating? I was on the scale this morning. I can confess to you, brothers, I do not strive for that in my eating. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He's not commanding us to do anything He hasn't done for us already. In 2 Corinthians 6, 
17:18 says this, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Don't even touch it. Don't toe the line. It's the same idea. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Are we living lives of distinction? Any questions or comments? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's it's exactly that's why I never pray for patience. I thought I was I thought I was better. I thought I had something yeah. nailed down. Right. Come on, seriously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and so the more that you're striving, the depth things just start to surface. Right. Things just start to surface. Right. And you're saying what? what? And I don't think it's because you become a worse person. You just it's become not. more aware. You become more aware for whatever well, it's reason. It's like that in everything. Like in your job, the more you learn about your God, the more you realize, I don't know what I thought. Well, yeah, what about this? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, medicine's that way. The yeah. further you progress and yeah. you learn more, you're just like, wow, well, yeah. how did I do this ten years ago? Right. I don't know any of this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the more you learn, the more you uh, think through things and figure out things. You look back and say, man, that kid. Or look back at something that I wrote five years ago. Right. Five days ago. Yeah. Like, what? Who is this? Yeah. What was I thinking? Right, right. And yet it's a constant it's a constant push toward the perfect. And we'll never get there until he returns. But we have hearts that want to get there and want to strive for that. And and um again, that exalts the worth of Christ and and and, and increases the hope that we have in his coming. So good. Right. That's good. Yeah. We were talking at the Truth Project at the Bible study we're going on Friday night, and uh, Robbie Zacharias made a point about the difference between morality and ethics. Mm-hmm. And, like we have a moral code that is the standard in our culture, kind of like we're talking about in Hebrews. You got to anchor to mm-hmm. this truth because you tend to drift with the ethics. Right. The, you have a, a code that we can't meet, and it should force us to fall. Yeah, morals are what ought to be, mm-hmm. and ethics are what are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, cult- they're cultural. Cultural, yeah. But morals are what ought to be, and right. ethics are what is di- dictated by the so culture. Ethics are God's perfect law. Morals are what society says is acceptable. Well, I think it's reverse, actually. The the, but anyway, anyway, the, there's an idea of what ought to be, and there's an idea of the regulations around trying to get to what a society thinks ought to be. How you, some people use those terms interchangeably, morals and ethics. But anyway. Um, but what we see here again is just a physical picture. Again, to teach them we're to be wholly other. And um, I, I think many times we live, woohoo, we're under grace. Let's send more so that grace may abound. Yeah. And so when you get to 
yes, we've been freed from the dietary laws, but we, we are still under the moral law. Right. And God very plainly says, this is holy because I say this is holy. Mm-hmm. Marriage is holy because I say marriage is holy. Yeah, and, and all of those things are rooted and grounded in who... is unholy because I say it's unholy. And right, they're rooted in Him. Right. All of those things are, be holy for I am holy, and this is what I look like. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, you hear sometimes in, in East Texas and other circles where there are a lot of people who go to church say, well, I think this is okay. Mm-hmm. And, and it's obviously not something that God says is okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a anyway it's just I, I think this is a clear picture of we don't get to decide what's okay because we are not the creator of the universe mm-hmm. and the one who holds all things together. So. Right, <laughs> right. Pulling from Hebrews. Okay. Any other comments, questions? Because it's it, it may be sort of late, possibly. Okay, I'll pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Um, Father, we want hearts that strive after your holiness and live lives of distinction, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but that because of what you've done in our hearts, we can display the beauty of Jesus and that he's worth it, setting aside um, what what, um, is a drive for us, taking up our cross, uh, which is taking on the yoke of what's your will, not ours, and then following Jesus because he's greater than what we desire. And we want to desire him more than anything else. Let our lives adorn the gospel that, that by how we live, the message that we teach and preach would shine rather than detract from the gospel. Because the gospel is about a person, the person and work of Jesus, and he is wholly other. So would you help us to live lives of that kind of distinction so that the gospel may flourish and grow and bring many men and women to you. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.